Welcome back to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and this week my guest is Timberly. I've known Timberly through Facebook. We have similar interests in same friends, and she's been in my Fearless Female Movement group for a while now, and I usually ask, if you're not in that Fearless Female Movement group on Facebook, I'm constantly on there posting videos, and on Sundays I ask questions, just thought-provoking questions. And I remember Timberly saying, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't take a drink the day before because I want to stay sober. And I was like, wow, you have a sobriety story. And she says, oh, do I have one? <laughs> so I was like, you should come on the podcast and talk about your sobriety. Now, Timberly is a divorced single mom of two beautiful young girls. And she's here to talk about her sobriety journey and her journey with domestic abuse. Now, all of you guys who listen to my podcast know that I am a big proponent against domestic abuse, both uh, verbally, mentally, physically. Men should not treat women regardless of we are their partner, their wife, their sister, even their coworker. No man should ever treat a woman like we are beneath them or we are subhuman. And so I will continue to use my platform, Journey of a Fearless Female, to give all women a voice so that more women can start seeing all the red flags and how we can prevent this kind of abuse in our lives and in the lives of our daughters, our sisters, and our friends. So everybody, please welcome Timberly. Thank you. I want to thank you, first of all, for having me on your podcast. As I said, I'm super duper nervous. <laughs> Don't be nervous. <laughs> and then just one correction to the intro, because it is super important. I do have three beautiful daughters. It's just the way I wrote the intro, it might have not come out that way, because I was a teen mom at 17. So I had my first baby at 17. And then every six years after that, I had another one. <laughs> so I have three <laughs> So tell us from the beginning, what was your childhood like? My childhood was very rough, very, very rough. My mom and dad divorced when I was five years old. There was me, my sister, who was two years younger, and then my little brother, who was two years younger than that. And after my parents divorced, my mom really delved into alcoholism course at five, I don't really remember a whole lot prior to that, but I sure do remember the rest of my childhood. After that, my mom drank a lot, went out with a lot of different guys. She was married five times. And in that process, I always felt hugely responsible for my little brother and my little sister. And so even though, you know, I was six, seven, eight, nine, I was always very aware of them and taking care of them. And I was the adult at such a you know young age. We moved a lot, and I mean a lot. We moved all the time, all over the state of Utah. She would she would be single, and then she would get married with these guys for a long time, or was it like an immediate like three months later she's married to a new guy? I would say there would be lots of dating, and then there would be married. I would say the one that followed after my dad, I was probably around eight or nine that we moved from Salt Lake down to St. George. And that was away from her sisters and her family and kind of away from everybody, really, away from my dad and my stepmom. That relationship ended up being a very abusive relationship. 
and I remember it very well. My mom was thrown down the stairs by her husband. And again, because the alcohol, I always felt super responsible for my littles and making sure that they were okay. And that night when he threw her down the stairs, he broke her arm, he broke three ribs. And so I've always remembered that. And my mom, he he then proceeded to kick her out. And I've always, that's always stuck with me because after that incident, she went to the window and she tapped on the window. You know, Timberly, Tori, open opened the window and I was just so frozen in fear. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And that has always, as you can tell, stuck with me even at the age of 48. Yeah. So she would be kicked out of the house and she was tapping on the window to come back into the house. Yeah. So she was, she was asking for you to let her back in. And obviously you'd be frozen in fear because A, you love your mom and B, you want to let her back in, but you're afraid of your new stepfather. But there's one key thing that he did, which is a blaring red flag, is that he isolated her. He took her away from her sisters, her family, from everything that she knows and moved her away to isolate her and to be able to control her and do the things that he was doing to her without anyone being able to help her. She didn't have anyone to run to if this was to happen to her. Yes. And honestly, even as you and I are, are talking about it, that red flag is just coming up to me now as a red flag. And it's after all that I've been through that I can now look back and see that as we speak. Her sisters ended up getting us out of there. They came down in the middle of the night and took us and took my mom and got us away from that relationship. Brought us back up near them. But again, she's drinking and going out. We called it the FOE. That's where she would She, <laughs> My mom had a great work ethic. I don't know how. <laughs> no, most alcoholics know how to compartmentalize. Like my father was an alcoholic, but he went to work every single day. He never missed a day of work, woke up every single morning, never missed a day of work. So it's weird because when I talk about my dad being an alcoholic, it's just like people envision a certain type of person, like somebody with like a brown bag and a beer bottle 40 in their hand and they can't even talk or walk or but there are really functioning, like high functioning alcoholics out there that you wouldn't even know that they were drunk or drinking throughout the day. And so she she kept a steady job at Comcast all those years. I, you know, it was amazing to me. But I knew where to find her during the day. And that was the good thing if I needed something for my sister or brother. But I ran wild. I was a wild child. I had no rules. I had nobody watching me. And it was very early that I got into trying my first drink and drinking. And How old were you? I would say probably sixth grade. I mean, just very early of taking that first drink and throwing up. Were you drinking out of your mother's stash or was it somewhere else? No, it was somewhere else. It was at a friend's house. It was by the school and stayed the night. And so we all tried alcohol. And so I do remember that first time, but still being, you know, not really doing much with it, but just, I remember it. And then through junior high, Again, not very well watched or anything, kind of running the streets. Tried pot. My boyfriend was older and it was super cool and he had pot. and We wouldn't really drink, but more, you know, try his pot type thing and kind of dabble in that. But again, I'm only seventh, eighth, ninth grade. 
had sex way too early. My my sexual first sexual experience probably was at twelve. It was just way too early. But I didn't I didn't real I knew it was wrong, but I didn't you know that's just what it was. Well, you were a latchkey kid. There was nobody really parenting you, and so you're just basically being raised by the streets. And so you have no real mentor or parental figure telling you, hey, let's talk about sex. Like no one's giving you the speech, you know, so you have, you're just going with the flow of what's going on. So it's hard to say, you know, I wish I would have done something differently. But at the same time, you didn't know any better back then. I I saw in my friends, you know, parents and how they parented. I will say my dad and my stepmom lived in the same town and they had visitation every other weekend. So for that Friday through Sunday, you know, it was more controlled and we'd go over and have bath and it was a more normal type of family situation. But again, that that was just our visitation. The rest of the time, it was like free roaming around and just doing whatever we were doing. There was no parental anything. It was just, it was, it was crazy. I look back and I do not know how I survived my childhood. I really don't. My sister almost burned the kitchen down. I came home one day and I come around the corner and our kitchen is on fire. I just don't know how we survived that. Or my mom drinking and driving and I, and just, just so many situations, you know, you look back on and you're like, wow. So, you know, that goes on through middle school and around 13, my mom finally got tired of my sassiness and talking back and said, you're going to go live with your dad. And I was like, oh, thank God, finally, you know, at least I'll be watched and I don't have to be the parent anymore. And so she thought she was threatening me and I was going to ship up. But what I did was really I shipped out. I went to my dad's and um, and that then became the opposite of what I was used to. <laughs> Now I had rules and lots of rules and lots of rules and being watched all the time. And I would say I was a good kid, but, you know, every now and then would be, I would take a drink out of their stash. They had it underneath and they didn't drink at all. I don't even know why they had what they had. Yeah. Because they just didn't ever have it around. But I do remember there was a couple of times of going under the sink and putting it in my bottle and then filling that up with water. (laughs) and just you know doing the normal teen thing and then it was at 17 that I became a teen mom my high school boyfriend and I had been together for a year and I got pregnant and this was senior year I was pregnant for half of senior year so you were 17 17 yep and I did end up having my baby in December and doing the schooling from home from September to June. And I got to walk with my class and I got to graduate. Super important to me that I did that. And did you stay with the father or? We ended up getting married that fall when my baby was one, we had gotten married and moved to California. All this time we'd lived in Utah and Wyoming. And now 18, I moved to California with my husband who was stationed at Fort Ord. He joined the army so that he could provide for us. And my one-year-old daughter, it's Christmas time and we packed up and we moved to California. My gosh, do you even think you're so young, 18? Oh yeah. Both of you guys are like babies. Oh yeah. And now you're moving to a whole new state 
and just starting to start your family. Yeah. And having had the childhood that I had, it was super important that I not be my mom. And so I was very present with my daughter. She was, you know, my best friend and I took really good care of her. My husband would be away a lot because he'd be boot camp or they got stationed elsewhere. And so it was me, 18, taking care of this baby. And I gave it everything that I had. Alcohol wasn't really an issue because my baby was my priority. And then I would say after two years of being in the army, I was feeling restless and, you know, he wasn't really helping me out. And I just thought, you know, I could do this by myself. Wasn't like really in love with him and kind of got married so that we could take care of the baby. It seemed like the right thing to do. And so I did that. And my dad said, Timberly, I can feel your dress shaking as I'm walking you down the aisle. You do not need to do this. And I can remember, like, I don't, I didn't want to do it, but I felt like that was what you were supposed to do. Mm, How many of us have done that? Just done what we were supposed to do, or we thought that's what we were supposed to do. And, you know, I mean, it's so wise of your dad to even suggest, you know, you don't have to do this, you know, and I think a lot of people forget that we don't have to do anything just because society says this is a normal thing to do, you know, so it's crazy to even look back now and you were shaking in your dress because your whole body was telling you don't do it. Don't do it. As I was walking down the aisle, don't do it. You don't have to do this pretty much forced myself to do it so I could give Corinne a normal life, unlike what I'd had, unlike what I'd experienced. Like, I was going to do this. I'm a fighter. I'm, I'm, and I'm, as I look back on this stuff, I'm a fighter. No matter what's thrown at me, like, I will, I'll figure it out. I'm going to be my, on my tombstone, by the way. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so here I am now living in Monterey, a single mom. Uh, My baby is around two and three. And in order to take care of her and pay rent in Monterey, California, I had to work two jobs. Yeah, it's pretty expensive up there. Especially for, yeah, a single mom. No college education, just fresh out of high school. But I did it. Hey, I did it. I knew what I needed to do and I did it. And I worked for the government. I worked for DLI down in Monterey for five years. Did my job. I would pick Corinne up at one daycare and I would take her to a nighttime daycare. Or I then would go down into Carmel and serve ice cream at an ice cream shop. Really? At night. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, I only really saw Corinne on the weekends, but that's what I had to do to make my rent. I refused to ask anybody for help ever, ever. I didn't ask for money from anybody, not from my parents, not from anybody. Um, In fact, when my first husband and I were married, We were in government housing and I was just so like against that. Like to me, that was embarrassing. Like I didn't ever want to admit that. And so when we were in that housing, it took me about three months of going out and waitressing to go walk into office and say, I don't need this government housing anymore. Like I make enough. Can you recheck my stuff? She said, I have never had anybody come in here and admit that. that they don't want to be on government housing and then prove, you know, looking back on that, you know, that makes sense. But I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that type of person. I don't need your, I don't need your help. I can do this. 
And so Karina and I were on our own in Monterey for three years before I met my... Well, prior to that, I did have a very short stint of a relationship with a guy who was in the army and we'd gone out a couple of times. And when he uh, swung a stick at me, threw me on the ground and swung a stick at me over a TV because we broke up and he wanted his TV back. And he threw the stick at me and my entire childhood flashed in front of my eyes and my mom being thrown down the stairs. And I'm all this, this is it. And my little girl's sitting right here watching. I thought that was going to be it. He he ended up walking away from that and I did have him arrested. And I'm like, this will not be my life. Not tolerate this from anybody ever. And I stood my ground and I had him arrested. That's good. Did you keep the TV? <laughs> no, I'm like, take the TV and go, dude. <laughs> I don't need that either. I made it work. It was hard. I, you know, I took care of Karim, but I would eat. For a year, I ate ramen, like two packs of ramen a day. I got down to probably 90 pounds. Wow. But just the sheer determination of taking care of my baby, that was all that was there for me. I wasn't, I'd probably gone out maybe two or three times. Again, I'm bringing this up because alcohol is not an issue at this point in my life. With what I'm up against, it's not, I don't have time for And I have my baby. And then I meet my second husband. My second husband, we dated for a year before he proposed. And he was opposite of the guy that had just swung a stick at me. He was stable. He came from a good home. He was polite. He had manners. And everything was just different. Older than you? or I would say he's three years older. And I'm 23 now. And how did you meet him? I met him through his sister. His parents were with Amway, whether they still are or not. I don't know. But we ended up going to a meeting for Amway with his sister. And one of the guys there asked me out. And so I went out with this guy a couple of times. Well, Craig, my second husband, asked this guy for my number, which I thought was pretty ballsy given we were all kind of in the same, you know, business together, so to speak. And so we we went out, we went to a hockey game and he was very polite. And the only word I can come up with is stable because I think that's what I needed at that point in my life, right? I'd had so much chaos with my childhood and then uh, I'd already been divorced. I'm like, what, what kind of mother am I that I just need to provide some stability for my daughter. And so I will make this work. It, it wasn't, oh, I'm so in love and love. It just, it wasn't like that. It's a very different thought process of just making it work and providing and doing the right thing yet again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or what you think is the right thing. Yeah. And so we were married for 17 years and it was, it was very stable. I got pregnant right away with my second daughter. And he went to work and I got to be a stay-at-home mom. And there really were no issues. I have nothing bad to say of my second husband. He's been a very good provider, a very good dad. He gave me two beautiful girls. And I think it's just we didn't connect on a attraction. You know, you want that whole romantic type level. Yeah. Well, because you just chose him because he was stable. Yeah. And that's, that's just not enough. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But now we have three girls that we're raising and I'm like, I, I can just stick it out until they're 18, <laughs> which is not a healthy 
No, and that's a lot of years to be wasted, unhappy. Yeah, even though there was nothing wrong, you know, when I told my dad that I was going to get divorced, my dad was just like, "What are you doing? He's he's nice. He's nice to you. He provide. What are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't know. I just know I can't keep doing this. I feel like I'm living a lie, and I can't I can't keep doing it anymore." That decision ends up bringing me to eight years of the most chaos I have ever endured in my life. We decide to get divorced, amicably divorced, and we work things out. And he's going to go work and go our separate ways. And as we're starting to divorce and I'm starting to move out, he, he went on a dating website and I'm like, oh, I, this is all brand new to me. And so I went on a dating website and, oh, I met this guy. And the first night that I move out, this guy asked me to go on a date. And so I moved my stuff during, during the day. And I thought, what the heck, you know, here we go. And so I went out and this, you know, I, I listened to one of your podcasts yesterday with Jennifer and her story was my story. And it just was like, wow, from that first night, this person was charming. It was exciting. It was new. And we were together from that moment on for the next eight years. There was no dating anybody else. There was no anything. It was just like game on. This person came at me hard and fast. Yeah, they always do. (laughs) And now I know lots of new terms I never knew. I know what love bombing is. I know all the narcissistic traits there are. I know what hoovering, like I've learned those things. And I know, I know that language very well now. Well, for the audience, why don't you describe what love bombing is? Love bombing is texting you all day long. How was your day? They they start to mold to what they know you're going to like. So they, they figure out what you like and who you are. And then they mold themselves to fit that. And they're very manipulative. And they know how to do that. They're very charming. I was told how beautiful I was how sexy you are and just all this new stuff. When you've been married for 17 years, you know, that stuff is just not there anymore. So this was fun and it was exciting and it was new and, um, and it was funny. And so I just really got lost in this new relationship. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of women who have didn't have a relationship where the person paid any kind of attention to them, the love bombing is more enticing because like she said, they, they really shower you with the text messages and the phone calls and the compliments and the presence and wanting to spend more time with you. And because you had a relationship prior to this where it was non-existent, you tend to fall in love faster and you end up, you know, thinking this is the most wonderful relationship. And when you are in that situation, because love is such a powerful energy and a powerful force, you kind of are blinded by all the other kind of red flags. Because now you probably could look back 2020 as hindsight. You could see all the little red flags that you kind of missed because the love bombing was just powerful. I could write a book and, you know, that's kind of in the back of my mind, but it would be called Swimming in a Sea of Red Flags. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There was a red flag here and a red flag there and a red flag everywhere. Like flags were flying and how, you know, I look back at it. And I'm trying to eliminate the shame 
from this for myself still. Of course, this is still a process I'm working through. How did I miss that? How did I allow this stuff to continue to happen? That's the process. That's the place I'm at. And what I'm finding is everybody who goes through these types of relationships question themselves on that too. Yeah. I feel like because I have also been a victim of domestic abuse from ex-boyfriends, I know why I allowed it. A, because like you said, you witnessed it with your mom. I witnessed it with my mom and dad, the physical and abuse. And then also, we didn't know what love was supposed to feel like or how it was supposed to look. And so your example was, you know, the abuse that your mom endured with all of her ex-boyfriends. And so therefore, you just thought this is the way it's supposed to be, you know, and also, like I said earlier, with the love bombing, you are so like, oh, my gosh, and they do such a good job because they can treat you like crap one minute. And then the next, you know, 30 minutes, they're telling you how much they love you to the moon and back. And so you forget and they're so good at manipulating the situation and not only manipulating the situation but gaslighting you into believing that somehow it was your fault that they got mad. It was your fault that you made them hit you, or it was your fault that caused them to have that rage. And then you, you really do second guess yourself and what you're doing. And it lowers your self-esteem to the point that you continue to allow it over and over again. It's not shameful. I always tell people, you know, because a lot of women say that would never happen to me. That would never happen. I'm so educated. I'm educated too. I have a bachelor's degree in communications. I went to college. I've been to therapy. I read the books. I read, you know, so many books. I help. I'm in love with a narcissist. And yet I still fell for it because they are so cunning. And so just you, you don't believe people to be this way. But unfortunately, there are a lot of men out there and they know the game very well. Absolutely. All of that. Absolutely. And then there's the issue of trauma bond and people learning what trauma bond is. It's Stockholm syndrome when exactly what you said, they're, they blow up at you and then they're nice to you and you like, well, it's easier to deal with them when they're nice to you than when they're blowing up at you. And so you forgive it and you move on and you just put it on the back burner. The other part of that is I'm an empath. Oh, and we we must let our people know that a narcissist loves an empath because they can play and master their game so much easier when they have an empath in their hands. And they, they seek those out too. I didn't realize all this, but I'm a very, I'm a forgiving person. I knew this person had issues from his childhood, from being, had abandonment issues, had his mom gave him up for adoption and that, and you know, and he shared all these stories and I just felt so bad for him. Yeah. And as an empath, you want to help save and repair this person. And I totally understand that because I had a friend too was who was in a very bad relationship. I mean, this guy used to really like hurt her and I would have to come over there and peel her off the floor. And he was so good at manipulating the situation and making, you know, her feel sorry for him, where she was always going back and saying, you know, I can help him. I can love him. It's because nobody loved him. And I need to love him. It's like, no, it's not your responsibility (laughs) at all. This man is broken. And he is searching for you as to be his punching bag, basically. 
And so that's how I endured that kind of behavior for eight years because, well, and at that point, I didn't know what a narcissist was. So I'm, I'm way more educated on narcissism in this past year. Prior to that, it was like, well, he's bipolar and he suffers from depression and it's not his fault. He has mental issues and I stayed in it way too long. Did you ever seek therapy during that relationship? Uh, Yes, I did a little bit. And the person told me, you need to leave. (laughs) (laughs) She's a good therapist. (laughs) I I didn't listen. I'm like, no, that's not it. I was also super educated in what bipolar was because as soon as I found out I was bipolar, like I educated myself. Okay, I can... I can handle this. I got this. I'll just figure it out. And was he diagnosed or was he self-diagnosing himself? Oh, no. He was diagnosed bipolar. I watched him go through his depression stuff. And so I I knew that part of it. I I didn't know what a narcissist was. And I tell you, that's just a whole nother playing field from bipolar and depression and drug. Like narcissist is just the devil. It is the devil. Was he both physically and emotionally abusive? Mine was emotionally, and it was done through text messages, probably 99% of the time. And it didn't get abusive until the very end. So we've been together, you know, for seven, I would say seven years. I always kept a separate apartment because when we first got together, we did try to rent a house together. And that didn't go so well because in these type of relationships, I would pack up and leave and then coming back and I'd pack up and leave and come back. And I would say after like the first, second year, I'm like, clearly we just cannot live together. We're just going to keep separate apartments. Like how stupid is that? (laughs) (laughs) And so for another three years, that's what we did. We lived in the same complex, different apartments. So we were nearby. And so For me, I felt like I had that safety net because mind you, I had my daughter, I had my girls and I had 50-50 custody. And so I always felt like I had needed that stability for my daughter. Whenever she came over, she wouldn't have to deal with him and I still did what I needed to do. And so I was kind of living a double life, you know, him when they weren't there. that, That again, that just should have been a red flag for me, that all that stuff. And I just kind of worked through it. By year six, I'm done with the bullshit. Like, I'm just done with all of it. I've tried to break up with this person nine million times. It, they just do not go away. They never fucking go away. They don't. No, they don't take no for an answer. <laughs> yeah, and they, they will just stalk you and, and torture you and follow you for the rest of your life. Like, And so I just could never find a way out of this relationship. I broke up with him a million times. And by the sixth year, my middle child, she had moved to Hawaii. She's 21. And she ends up finding out she's pregnant. And so her and her boyfriend, they moved back. And I suggested at the time, why don't you guys move in with me? And for me, this was like a praise Jesus moment in that it would really keep me away from this other person. It would take my time. I could focus on that. I could work to death and I would never have to be around this other person because I couldn't figure out how else to get rid of them. And so they move home and we move into a big three bedroom apartment. And financially for me, that just was not a good decision. That's kind of where the start of my alcoholism really lights its fire and that I, I bring them into my home and she's pregnant and I'm working my car the ex 
now. He ends up totaling my car. Wow. Yeah, totaled it. I'm sure he's texting another girl or what have you. I don't know, but totals my car. And so I've got my kids just moved in, this brand new three-bedroom apartment. I'm trying to figure out how to financially pay for that. And now I have a car payment on top. And it just started to be this thing where it was one thing after another. And everything just started to pile up on me faster than I could fix it. And so I started drinking. Fireball became my best friend. Now, was it like in the evening or during the day? Yes. So at that point, when I first started, it would just be on the weekends. So, you know, I could still work and that, or it would just be at night. But with each thing that happened, I started to get more of a fuck it attitude. And so the drinking would become more and more. And I would say the day after Christmas Eve, I was going to work and I came down the stairs and I saw my boyfriend sneaking a girl out of the apartment. <gasps> Literally walked into each other. No way. Yeah. And I'm like, he knows I'm dealing with all this shit. My alcoholism is really just really starting to take off. And that was just one more reason for me to drink. I broke up with him 99 times in that period. He just does not leave me alone. He'll show up at work. It didn't matter if calls were blocked. Nothing was always there, always showing up at work. Did you ever at one point think of getting a restraining order from him or no? Oddly enough, at one point a year prior to that, he did kick my door in and he grabbed me by the wrist. And that scared me because he'd never touched me before. You know, this is six years and he'd never even touched me before. And so when he grabbed my wrist, I screamed really loud and he took off. And so the cops came and he had a peaceful contact order on him. So he would all, you know, let's just say he knew how to work the system as an ex-cop. Oh, I didn't know he was an ex-cop. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So he knew how to manipulate the system. He knew all the laws, what he could get away with, and that type of thing. And of course, calling the cops was my fault. Them coming to look for him was my fault. Everything was my fault. Like, I should have known better. I, you know, you know, the whole... Gaslighting. Yeah, so, but for me personally, I finally had a little bit of peace, knowing that I had that order. And I'd also proved, don't fuck with me. I'll call the cops. You know, kind of felt I had a little bit of that power there. So the day, going back to the day after Christmas and the girlfriend walking out, you know, that just continued to fuel my alcohol. Like I just felt completely, I've lost every, like I'm just, I can't win. That's my feeling. I can't win no matter what I do. I got this piece of shit boyfriend and this going on. My daughter's, you know, I can't pay the rent because I'm not able to make the amount I need because I have my car. And everything, the bills just start to pile up. Well, that was all December. Three weeks after that, it's my daughter's baby shower. My first grandchild, and I'm, you know, excited about her having the baby and helping to get everything ready for it. And I'd gone down to the parking lot to pick up the cake, and the ex and the girlfriend are down in the parking lot. And that, yeah, just sets me down the wrong freaking path altogether. I ended up being horribly drunk at my daughter's baby shower. Don't remember any of it. Um, I was horribly embarrassing. Probably the biggest mistake, you know, that I made that year was to do that. 
my girls just didn't even know what to do with me anymore. They were beyond frustrated. My oldest, you know, is a high school art teacher. She lived up in Sacramento and she would come down and, you know, mom, what are you doing? And she, she tried so many times, like, mom, you've got to pull it together. What are you doing? Don't worry about him anymore. Don't, you know, pull it together. And I know after this baby shower incident, they were just like kind of beyond themselves or besides themselves on what to do with me. Yeah. They had seen that you had hit your rock bottom. Yeah. And to them, I, they thought I'd hit my rock bottom. That, that was, you know, and I thought for me, that would be it too, but that's not it. Another couple weeks goes by and now I'm drinking from the time I get up to the time I go to bed. Cause I just don't want to deal with anything anymore. At this point, I'm just completely done. This is a month after the baby shower, just daily, daily drinking. I got to a point where I didn't even want to live anymore. And so one morning I got up and I started drinking with the full intent to not wake up ever again. Oh, no. Yeah. And suicide that, oh, because we'd gotten eviction notice. I had felt it that too. We were getting kicked out. And I felt like I had felt my, my girls my daughter's pregnant. We're all getting kicked out of this apartment. And I just couldn't make anything happen anymore. I'm embarrassing. And so that was it for me. And so that day I drank myself into such a blackout drunk that I'd hoped that that was it. And I just wouldn't wake up. I woke up that night to five police officers in my bedroom. Wow. Did someone call? My youngest. <sighs> She probably just trying to wake you up. Yeah, she was scared. She was scared to death. And uh, so she called the suicide hotline and they called the PD. And so I woke up and there were five police officers in the apartment. And uh, my pregnant daughter telling me, you know, you just need to go with them. Mom, you're not okay. You need to go. And so I was placed on a 5150 overnight. And um, that's still wasn't my rock bottom. Believe it or not, it wasn't my rock bottom. Due to uh, being on a 5150 and all the issues I was having, it was agreed that I would take some time off work. I was still working. I have my mom's work ethic and I would just need to handle all the chaos in my life. So now I'm homeless. I have a 5150. My youngest goes to live with a friend, thank goodness. My daughter has her baby. And they, they find a place at his mom's house. And so that's all handled. But now... Where are you living? <laughs> guess. Your ex-boyfriends. Mm -hmm. And as it's all happening and unfolding I'm, in my body, I'm just screaming this the worst decision ever. Like, I cannot believe that this is now my life. They're putting me into the hands of the devil himself. Everything I had fought against. And we're just moving my stuff down there. And I knew immediately it was a bad idea. And so I'm off work for three months. It's not good for me. I am a workhorse. I, I crave it. I desire it. I need it. I have no work. I'm stuck with him. And I would say it was two weeks in before I started doing the pack my car and leave. If we get in a fight, pack my car and leave. Bad part about this now, it's really fueled by alcohol. It's fueled heavily in alcohol. I don't give a fuck about anything anymore. Is he drinking alongside with you? Absolutely. He was my enabler. He would go buy it for me. He would make sure I had it. 
And at the same time, be calling me a drunk and an alcoholic and nobody likes you. And oh, yeah, it's just the worst nightmare you could ever find yourself in. Yeah. And you felt completely trapped, like you had nowhere else to go. Oh, yeah. You know what? I want to say I did if I would have asked for help, but I was too, too much pride. I just, I wouldn't, I'm like, I will fix it myself. I'll fix it myself. I don't know how or why I thought that. Looking back on it, that was just dumb. So for three months, I am now packing up and leaving. I'm living in my car sometimes, in hotels, if I had enough money. I drove to Utah and stayed with my parents for a week. And it's just absolute chaos. I was supposed to be going to AA meetings because I told my daughter I would. But I didn't want to. I didn't, I didn't think I could... I could fix it myself. I didn't need AA and I didn't need anybody telling me that's what I need to do. I don't need to be told what to do. That was my mindset. And so finally in this moving in and out, I'm somewhat vocal on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm private, but like, I'm not, I wasn't afraid to say, Hey, does anybody need a house sitter? Right. And somebody who kind of knew I must be living in a little bit of chaos said, Hey, we're gone for, a week. Why don't you come stay here? And that ended up changing everything for me. I needed that space. I stayed there for a week. I signed up for Bumble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another dating app. Another dating app. So that worked out so well for me the first time. <laughs> Some people don't learn. And so I also don't tell my ex where I'm living. So now I have somewhere to stay where he can't just show up. And so I still didn't feel safe enough to go out and date because I didn't want him like ruining or sabotaging or showing up or anything. You know, you just don't know with these stalker types what they're going to do. And so while I would chat with other guys, I wouldn't go out. And that went on for about a month. And I ended up staying at this person's house and renting a room. I was still drinking. I was, I thought I was hiding it, but I really wasn't hiding it just kind of doing my own thing. But what I was doing was pulling away from that other relationship and just trying, mind you, I had no money, no money. Like I had to figure it out. And so August 25th, I finally went out for, no, it wasn't the first day. I went out on a second date on August 25th to paint night. And I met the guy that I'm with now. And when you listen to my story, I'm sure it just sounds like going from one guy to the next uh, guy. Um, (laughs) I hadn't planned for it to be that way, do we ever? But I went out with him and he ends up being this source of light that I really, I was super drawn to. We hit it off right away and we had gone out for two weeks and the ex found out about it and of course tried to sabotage it. He sent... Darren, my current boyfriend, uh, nasty texts and I'll beat your ass and was... Wow. Yeah. My boyfriend and I talk about it all the time. Like we both need therapy after the shit that we've been through that this person put us through. It's just god awful. But he stuck by you. That's good. He did. Yeah. I don't know how, but he did. So two weeks into this and the boyfriend comes back into the picture and he does the whole make me feel guilty and I end up staying with the ex-boyfriend oh no yeah yeah oh yeah just to work it out come on just what he did the whole crying and the manipulation and all that stuff and I and I had alcohol and so I'm like oh my god like 
I'm never going to get out of this stupid decision. We're together all of five days. And um, I don't remember that night because typical, you know, time with us Saturday, when we start drinking around three. Well, now we're hanging out and both drunk. And I don't remember the rest of the night. I, um, I woke up completely bruised. Oh my God. My face is bruised. My head feels like it's been smashed in. I have bruises all over my arms. I don't know what happened, but I can guess. And uh, I still had to get up and I had to go to work. I threw a baseball cap on. I'm a Pilates instructor. So I had gone to work in the morning and I kept my baseball cap on and I kept the lights off and I kind of worked, you know, my couple of hours and made it through that without anybody knowing what had happened. And I called Darren right away and I told him and he's like, I told you not to go back into it. What do you need? And he came over and he saw me. He's like, you've got to call the cops. Everybody told me to call the cops. And I didn't want to call the cops because I was too scared. Like I had told people the only way out of this relationship is if he dies or I sneak away in the middle of the night. And, and I knew that with everything in me, that would always be my only way out. And that is such a sad statement to make. And I, I hate that I felt that. That's why I'm so vocal about it now, because that's not your only two choices ever. There are, there are maybe it is, but at least reach out and ask for help. And so Darren and I, um, <laughs> it still doesn't get better from there. I, I end up working that week. And by the fifth day, my ex has, you know, I'm sorry, and done the whole still texting me. So you didn't call the cops? I didn't call the cops. No, because you know why? It's because I was drinking. I didn't remember. Yeah, I didn't remember what happened. So they probably wouldn't believe your story. Did you at least document it and take pictures of the bruises? Yeah, I took pictures. And I didn't remember what had happened. I had no clue what had happened. And so, again, scared, too scared to call. And, you know, he apologized and I'm sorry. And I don't, I, I don't remember. It's like, I'm sure you never want to see me again, but just come over and get your stuff. And stupidly, I went over and I got my stuff from his house and he had two shots of fireball there waiting. And I'm so sorry. And two shots always leads to more. And that night we hung out again that night and Darren, the new boyfriend called and said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. He said, no, you're not. I'm at your, I'm at your house and you're not here, which led to him like not talking to me, blocking me, wanted nothing to do me. Who would? I was a fucking hot mess. Like who would want to deal with this person? And that's what I'm saying. I don't know how he made it through what he was put through. And so for that full weekend, I knew like I had had my way out and I just fucked it up. Like it was gone. That was it. The door has closed. It's done. And I drank from morning till night for the next three days. It was Labor Day weekend. I drank Saturday all day, all night, Sunday, all day, all night, Monday, all day, all night. I had to pull it together uh, Tuesday to go to work. Didn't drink that day. And I went to work and I got to work and Darren texted me and he said, do you want to talk to me? And I said, do you want to talk to me? Like I did this to you. Do you want to talk to me? And he said, come over after work. And we're really going to talk about this. I went because I owed him that much. And when I went into his house, I was like, 
we're going to talk this out. And he came at me hard and fast. You hurt me. You betrayed me. You said you didn't want to be with. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have to do this. Like, I barely know you. And I don't need this. Like, I already have this, whatever that is. And he backed off pretty quickly. Just talk it out. You need to talk it out. You did this. You need to talk it out. Here's the thing about Darren. Darren grew up with a rough childhood also. His dad is a narcissist. He watched his mom go through it for 38 years. He knows the background of narcissism. He knows that he saw it. He saw it right away. But he also has 28 years of sobriety. Yeah, so this ends up being really key. That night when I was there and he was like, you need to talk this through. I tried to leave and he's like, you need help. You need to go to AA. You need to get your shit straight. Your kids are not talking to you anymore. You don't have anywhere to live. Look at your life. Your life is fucked up. You need to go to AA. So did he take you? No, he didn't take me. He told, And Darren has two kids, 15 and 12 year old. And he said, you know what? You're not allowed around my house if you're drinking. If this is the lifestyle that you're choosing, you do not get to be around me or my kids because I have created a life for my kids where they can feel safe and you don't get to ruin that. So if you're going to you know, continue down that path, you're kind of on your own. But look at where your life is at. Is that really what you want to do? And I think it took somebody being up in my face saying those words to me to finally like trigger that I needed to change. Yeah. It was finally your aha moment. It was finally my, it was my rock bottom. It finally had hit. And the next morning I got up and I dumped everything out. I went to AA that day. That, that kind of create, that started my sobriety was that day. I'd gone to AA. I started going every day. I'd go once or twice a day. I started pulling away from that other relationship fully. I became more standing up for myself. Like, you don't get to text me. You don't get to do this. Like, you are gone. Really setting those boundaries. And how long have you been sober today? So today it's been August 25th. It would be 11 months. I did relapse on February 14th. I was still having a hard time with not getting people to my girls to fully come around and to fully talk to me. And so here's, here's what I will say. AA teaches you to do, keep doing the next right thing. When you start doing the next right thing, like my, when the girls were not ready for me yet and I was ready for them, I wanted them now. Yeah. Yeah. Like I fixed my, I fixed this. Why won't you talk to me now? Well, they didn't, they weren't ready yet. You know, it wasn't their time. They needed the proof. And so, you know, here I am being so good, September, October, November, Christmas, and they're still not, you know, ready. And I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to drink. And stupidly, you know, I got two shots, but immediately I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I had to come home and tell Darren. And he's like, what are you doing? You know, you've been this good for this long. And it was a quick, you know, what are you doing? But also like, don't do it again. It, it ruins the date of your sobriety. So while my sobriety date is, uh, it's actually September 25th is my sobriety date. I ruined it February 14th. And so your sobriety date starts over. <laughs> Those few shots, you know, but I don't let that. I also don't let that ruin this for me. 
Yeah. Well, you're on a journey. You're on a journey to find your sobriety. And honestly, there's a lot of healing that needs to go on. A lot of forgiveness, a lot of you have to give yourself a lot of grace. Like you said, with your childhood and all that you've experienced, you didn't have the right tools, you didn't have the right people mentoring you or examples of what life is supposed to be. I mean, thank God for Darren coming into your life. And even though he himself didn't have a great childhood, he's doing the right things now to change that generational curse that was in his life. And he's setting a great example for his kids now. You know, it's good that he you found him. It's good that he stayed in your life because, you know, regardless of what your situation is or the things that you've been through, he sees who you truly are and you are a fighter. And regardless if you messed up or, you know, had a relapse in February, you're back on the wagon. You're doing great with sobriety. And I love that you're honest about your story. And that's the reason why I asked you to be on the podcast is when you share in the Fearless Female Movement Facebook group, it shows your true self. And a lot of people need to be more authentic and more real and raw and honest about life. It's not always easy. It isn't. And especially if we have not taken the time to really heal our past and let go of our ghosts and move forward, it's not easy. And, you know, a lot of people use drugs, alcohol to sedate and to just try to numb out. And especially right now with the pandemic, there's so much going on. People are at home and there's new depression, anxiety, stress, all kinds of different mental stuff that when you drink alcohol or when you do drugs, it sedates all those feelings and it's, it's an easy exit. It really truly is an easy exit, which is why a lot of people do reach for the bottle or reach for the pills or reach for the needles because it's easy. But unfortunately, life isn't meant to be easy. <laughs> it's a long, hard journey and everyone has their own tribulations and trials and we all are discovering ourselves and how to live and manage this life. But I just wanted to say thank you so much, Timberly. Would you say that your nugget of wisdom is just do the next right thing? Or what would you say is your nugget of wisdom? That is exactly it. And we say it around our house all the time. Just keep doing the next right thing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, don't think about like the future or, or what you did in the past. Just keep doing, take one step forward. And that's all it takes. Well, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser. You can find the Fearless Female Movement group on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at Fearless Female Podcast. Timberly, how can my audience find you? I can be found on Facebook at Timberly Enders. And I also have a website, musclesmascarafit.com. Perfect. All right. Thank you guys again for listening to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. Goodbye. Goodbye.